I'm here to help you with everything. You can't fix the parts without treating the whole. Yeah, no one's treated my whole in a really long time. Welcome, everyone, to episode 10 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. That's right. By our counting mechanism, we are now into double digits in episodes, and we have a big deep dive into a recent release that really caught the two of us by surprise. But first, I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and I'm here today with my co-host, as always, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great, Scott. You know, we, we pointed it out on the last episode, I believe, that when we recorded this episode, I would be done with 1L year, and I'm not sure I believed it then, and I'm not sure that I still believe it now, but um, I have made it through the uh, first year of law school, the uh, 1L of a ride, as they call it. <laughs> well, congratulations. I know I, I just said last time, I think, as well, that I would withhold my congratulations till you actually finished all your exams, yeah, and so yeah, we're fair. past that point now, and, and congratulations. Thank you, thank you. I, I mean, I don't know how I have two more years of this. I feel like I did it all in one year, but uh, onwards and upwards. Yeah, onwards to somewhere. We'll see. Hopefully it's upwards. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. well, re- regardless, well, we, can, we can keep movies as a constant in our lives as well over that time, and maybe that'll soften the blow. Yes, yes. All right, well, uh, you know, we didn't really talk about our concerns on air about whether or not we get to see the seagull, but we discussed them off air, and they certainly came to fruition. We have not been able to see the seagull. We will not be able to talk about it this week. It has we had to stop making empty promises. Yeah, we really do. We need to, we need to check our limited release schedules a little bit more thoroughly before we promise movies. Even even President Trump what they sh- they said he he keeps like he has kept like 75% of his uh, campaign promises since I, he's been in office. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we I, oh goodness. That's, oh man, I can't believe that came they up. They were they were stupid promises, but he kept them. Yeah. Well, that, may, that makes some of us then, I guess. Um, but unfortunately, we're not going to be able to talk about the seagull this week. Hopefully, we'll get to discuss it on a future episode. We're going to see what the release schedule is like, and, and both for the seagull and also for other movies that we have on our radar. But uh, ho- hopefully, we can talk about it on a future episode. For sure, yeah. I mean, it's definitely one that I'm interested in seeing as well. Yeah, and I did list it as one of my top five anticipated movies of the year. So if we don't get to talk about <laughs> yeah, it, it'll be disappointing. You'll have to anticipate it a little bit yeah that's okay i I can handle it all right i think that does give us more time to talk about the movie we will be discussing today and that is tully uh which caught i mean i mentioned this already but caught us both by surprise after we saw it uh released on may 4th so that was not this weekend but last weekend uh, directed by jason reitman tully stars charlize theron in the leading role of marlo a struggling middle-aged mother of two who is pregnant with a third her son, Jonah, has a developmental disorder that makes Marlo's life incredibly difficult, and her husband, Drew, played by Ron Livingston of, of Office Space fame, is largely yes. uninvolved with the more difficult tasks of parenting that Marlo bears. After giving birth to her third child, Marlo quickly becomes overwhelmed and takes the advice of her successful brother, Craig, played by Mark Duplass, in hiring a night nanny for Marlo's newborn to help take some of the stress off of her. From there, the film explores the relationship that Marlo and her new night nanny, Tully, played by Mackenzie Davis, develop, and how it changes each of their lives. All right, Scott, I don't know about you, but I went into this movie not really sure if I'd enjoy it. From the previews, it didn't look at 
all that interesting to me. The trailers really hit home with the fact that the movie is about the struggles of parenthood, and that's not something that I can personally connect with or relate to from my own experiences. You know, I saw then I saw it was only an hour and a half long, and I, I could pretty much be down for any movie that's under 100 minutes. I know we talk about that a lot. Um, and that it had been generally well-received by critics. So I went in a little bit more optimistic than maybe I'd been when I first saw the trailers uh, a couple months ago. And by the time the credits rolled, I can comfortably say that I was pretty wowed by this movie. I'm not sure if the wow factor is something that is entirely good or entirely bad. Like, I don't, I don't love this movie, I don't think. But this movie did wow me. And to get us started, I'd love to hear what your general impressions of the film were. Yeah, so, I mean, going into this, uh, I kind of had sort of the same reaction to, uh, as you uh, in terms of my excitement level for it. But at the same time, um, you know, the names behind this movie, Jason Reitman and Diablo Cody, I still, when I hear those names, especially when they're together, I always go back to, you know, the movie which put both of them on the map, which is was Juno back all the way back in 2007, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, so, you know... It, having those two names involved always gets me more interested in a movie, even though I don't think that either one of them has really been able to replicate the magic of Juno since then. I mean, I think that they've done good work since then. I mean, Jason Reitman had Up in the Air, which obviously was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Um, Diablo Cody had... um, Jennifer's Body was like the direct follow-up to uh, to Juno, which I actually think is kind of an underrated movie. It wasn't really well-received at the time, but it's also not anywhere on the level that Juno was. Um, but then, of course, they teamed up for Young Adult, another movie starring Charlize Theron. Uh, and I wasn't as huge a fan of that one. So I, I, you know, I've still been waiting. I've still been believing that they could get that their touch back. And I guess all it took was just to tell another story about a pregnant woman. Um, because... Uh, they did it with Juno, and they they've pretty much done it again here, in my opinion. I don't I don't think that this movie matches Juno certainly, um, but as you said, I was pretty blown away by it. And you know, you were talking about how you were a little bit trepidatious going in because you weren't sure if you would could connect with this movie, and that was exactly the same reaction that I had um, looking at the trailers. Um, you know, I, I was thinking this isn't something I have gone through. This is something I've ever had going to ever have to go through really like at least not from marlo's perspective um and so i you know i wasn't sure you know i thought this might be a good movie but is it really going to resonate with me and it 100 percent did i mean this movie is so real like that is the the adjective which i think describes it the best probably and i mean there are scenes like where like I've like I've heard these exact same conversations happen before and the relationship between Charlie Theron's character and her husband played by Ron Livingston I feel like it's so like real and honest because at the same time there's this like lack of a spark between them like you know there's the recurring bit where she'll come up into the room at night and there he sits playing his video games and they you know they don't even really have a conversation with each other and, but at the same time, they like they obviously love each other and they obviously care about each other. And there are these moments where they interact with each other, and you can tell, like you know, that the, their relationship, like you, you, you know, why that these two are, are married to each other. And you know, obviously, again, I can't speak from personal experience, but I feel like that there are a lot of marriages that are probably like this. And the whole thing just uh, rang with authenticity to me. And they're. Um, there are some specific scenes maybe that we'll probably talk about um, 
which which I think about in particular. Um, but then, of course, this movie takes a, a really big third act twist. Yeah, and, and before before you talk about that, I do want to say like if you haven't if you're listening to this and you haven't watched Tully, like please do not listen any further if yeah, we're exactly. talking about spoilers you know, because the third act. Yeah, because the third act really changes the tone and direction of the film, exactly. and you really don't want to know about it before it happens. We all we all have spoiler warnings. We we always have spoiler warnings on these movies, but like we actually we mean it this time. I mean, if you're going to see this movie, um, do not listen to yeah. the sec- the back half of this review once we get into spoilers. Yeah, um, the, the entire because, effect of the movie will be lost on you if you know it. If you know it going yes. In. Yeah, and, that, and that's the thing. So I really did not see what was coming. You know, this in, this character of Tully is introduced and really just turns the movie on its head because, like I said, up to that point, there is such an authentic feel about the the characters, the dialogue, and, you know, just what Marlowe is going through. It was so authentic that, you know, even though I haven't gone through it, I felt like I was going through it with her in a certain way. Um, but then Tully is introduced, and she's this sort of larger-than-life character. And I'm like okay, you know, I enjoy watching this character. Like, Mackenzie Davis, I think, gives a, 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 a very enjoyable performance. Um, but I'm like, this is kind of throwing the movie off. So I was really hoping that there was, you know, a development coming with that character. And there is. And that's that's what we get in this third act twist. Um, so really, I think that this movie, like, it hits every beat that I was wanting it to hit. Like, you know, I was uh, I started out not knowing what to expect, and it was getting into it, and I was really enjoying it. Like, I was laughing a lot. There are a lot of really funny moments in the first half of this movie. Um, and, you know, then, like I said, the Tully characters introduced, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I'm enjoying this, I'm still enjoying this, but you need to do, you need to do something different. And then they did something different, and the something that they did was, I mean, I thought it was, it, it, it made a lot of sense. And in the end, it, it ended up adding a whole new layer of it, like emotional resonance to this movie. Um, so, I mean... It, my general impression is that this is one of the best movies that we've talked about this year for sure. Yeah, I think that that's uh, I think I totally hear what you're saying, and I know I to talk about maybe the front half of the movie first because I know we have a lot to talk about at the back half, the third act. I think that for me, I I don't know if I loved the, the first parts of the movie as, as it sounds like you might as it sounds like you have loved them. Um, <laughs> there definitely are funny moments. There definitely. Are, are very real moments. I think that your description of it being a just brutally authentic movie is 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 really true. It, it's one of the most raw movies I think that I've seen. If that if that's like a fair way to describe it, maybe I'm not really capturing the right word. Maybe there, but the the raw emotion of everything, and sometimes that means that a lack of emotion too. I think. Sure. So there are scenes in the in where. That I think you were even alluding to between where like let's say Marlo is fixing dinner. There's actually one scene in particular where Marlo is fixing dinner for uh, Jonah and I believe Sarah. I can't remember the other daughter's name right now off the top of my head. I think it was Sarah. Yeah. Yeah, and you know she's fixing dinner for them and it's like frozen pizza heated up with also like I think frozen broccoli as well maybe. Like, yeah, yeah. Up. And you know Drew comes in her husband and it's like oh like frozen pizza great. And, like, they're also, like, the two, I think Jonah and Sarah, like, playing on, like, tablets or something or phones, something like that. And he makes a comment and, and Tully just, like, stares, or sorry, not Tully, Marlo just stares at him. Um, and, like, dead stare. Like, completely. Exactly, yeah. Those are some of the moments that I was, I was thinking about where there's just, there's an authenticity to them. Like, 
it, it almost like these like microaggressions and there's like this this unspoken tension between the two of them and he's sort of exacerbating it with these little comments but she's not really saying anything but you you know you can feel the tension between them exactly yeah and, and that that's a that's a microcosm i think of the, of the whole movie uh and an example of a moment where you know it's still so authentic but uh, even if it lacks it like even if the scene lacks emotion itself and that's something that i really appreciate i think it's something that's really hard to capture on screen throughout and this movie does it for the full 95 minutes i think uh that's and, an in- yeah and it's interesting too because diablo cody like the thing she did with juno was that as great as that movie is like as i mean i think it's a perfect movie honestly Oof, um, big words <laughs> well you know i did say it was one of my favorite movies of all time so, um but i i think that you know maybe it doesn't feel like so raw and authentic like because i mean you know the characters have a very particular way of speaking in that movie you know it sort of coined its own lingo um and so i mean i think there are some real things that juno goes through with with motherhood and there's you know some real stuff that goes on in the relationship between jason bateman and jennifer garner but you know this movie really it, it looks at the other side of pregnancy um, and I think that, that Diablo Cody really like portrays it in such an evocative way that, like I said, even though I haven't been through it, even though I couldn't relate, like, you know, you, you, you feel the pain to some extent that Marlowe is going through. Absolutely. And I, and I think that part of it for me that, that struck, struck home with me is, is the scenes with Jonah, um, the opening scene, and then also, you know, several of the scenes where she, where Marlowe and, and Jonah are at, at school together. And sure. I, even the opening scene, I believe it's the opening scene at least, where she's brushing him. And like that is just, a, it was such a strange start to the movie and really set a tone that it was it was uneasy at first. And I, and I think that I was uneasy throughout most of this movie, to be honest. I don't, I don't know if there's ever a point in this film where I like settled in for it, if that makes sense. And, and your experience might have been completely different. But I was always kind of uneasy with what was going to happen next and maybe there were moments once once Tully arrives that I settle in a little bit more as you know their chemistry and relationship and dynamic on screen develops which is I think it's really incredible I think it's some of the best performances I've seen so far this year there too see I kind of had the opposite reaction almost because I I I kind of was settling in during the beginning because there you know there's there's a real stretch of the movie where I think that you know, you get those really real moments, but you also get a lot of humor, and there is a lot of humor, like, yep. in this movie, you know, especially in the first half, so I was settling in, I was really re- uh, responding to a lot of the jokes and a lot of the moments, and then the Tully character is introduced, and kind of throws, like I said, throws things out of whack a little bit, and the character is so larger than life, and is so, like, kind of a perfect character, that I was kind of grew more uneasy because i was waiting you know something's got to go wrong here like everything was going so right for a while it's like something there there has to be a mm-hmm. uh, you know a catch here yeah no I, I i guess maybe that i'm i'm talking about something different i totally hear what you're saying and i think that's true like you, there's definitely things are going so well that some, i mean something has to go wrong for the movie to have a point and so yeah. I, I totally hear what you're saying there and i just think that i found i know this is kind of segueing into talking about um, Mackenzie Davis's performance as and Tully's character, but I just found that character to be so magnetic on screen. I like yeah. she's a person who you know, I, you know, I've met a couple people that I've that I, whose personalities I think are similar to hers in real life, and they are really captivating people to be around. You can you can see why someone like Tully is such a force 
when she arrives in a room and to, can take over a situation, put people at ease, but also you know help them have a good time. And it's that kind of personality and performance captured by how this character was, ri- was written by Diablo Cody, and as well as, and maybe even more so, is how it was performed by Mackenzie Davis that was just so captivating for me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. I agree. We'll talk about the performances a little bit more, but I mean, she, I think this is this is kind of a, a breakthrough, or it should be a breakthrough role for her. I mean, I've, I have enjoyed her in some movies in the past. Um, I thought she was great in a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Always Shine, kind of a small independent movie that mm-hmm. not a lot of people saw. Um, she was in The Martian but, with uh, Matt Damon. Yeah, yeah, she was. That's true. Um, but I think that she is yet to, like, sort of break through, and I hope that this is this role does for her, I mean, like, just, you know, off the top of my head, sort of what uh, Winner's Bone did for someone like Jennifer Lawrence, you know, to, to get her to, to sort of pro, um, propel her to a place where she's uh, a known commodity and can get bigger roles in bigger movies, because I think she, like you said, she lights up the screen whenever she's on, on screen. Absolutely, and and to that point, I think that she's already in a couple movies it doesn't matter we can it's not irrelevant um anyway going back to the point i think i don't know if i have much more to add now without but because we're going to talk about a lot more of the things that i want to talk about later on uh, especially once we talk more spoilers but I, I i think overall i agree with your take about the authenticity i think that is what this film has to offer more than anything else is authenticity and then uh along with that two incredible performances by charlotte theron and um mackenzie davis Yes, I mean, I, I agree. Like, going into to Charlize Theron's performance a little bit now, like, you know, I, I think she just she wears this performance all over her face, all over her body. Yeah, like, she gained 50 uh, pounds for this role. Yeah, I mean, and, and you can you can kind of see that. I mean, it's, it's the, the distinction is so stark when, you know, from how she looks during the beginning of the movie. And I think they did a great job of, like, the hair and makeup and everything in this movie because, you know, what, I, what I'm saying here is, like, at the beginning of the movie, the distinction is so stark when she's going through the pregnancy and, you know, through the through the first days before Tully arrives. Um, you know, she just looks so haggard and downtrodden all the time. And then as Tully starts to work her magic, so to speak, and, you know, uh, uh, Marlo starts to get her life back, like, you see Charlize Theron, like, starts looking like 10 years younger um and you know some of that weight goes off and so i think they do a great job with that but i mean even even like her you know we talk about this with actors a lot of times even like her facial expressions and stuff like say so much in this movie and you know in in moments like those ones that you're talking about um when ron livingston's character makes these little comments you know these little uh passive aggressive comments um and you know she doesn't snap she doesn't fly off the handle but you know you can see in her face how how she really feels about the comments and you know the same thing during some of the scenes with the school administrators um and i'm going to mention one of those later on because one of them in particular was my favorite scene in the movie um but again her reactions like the the fake sentiment behind what these um these school administrators are telling her about her son and everything like you know she's saying one thing but her face is saying something else uh until she she you know she she fully uh lets the administrators know how she feels um and so i think that you know she she pulls off what uh, is is a very difficult role here and you know for someone like me who is probably like about as antithetical to this character as you can imagine for someone like me to come away feeling like I related to 
this person like is such a credit to her performance absolutely yeah i i agree i, I remember the like first couple of movies that i ever saw charlie's thrown in um were not we're not very memorable for her performance I, yeah i i, I she, go ahead yeah at, at the same time she has this sort way of sort of transforming like herself as an actress like that we have seen over the years i mean the performance which won her an academy award at monster back 15, some 15 years ago when she played eileen ornos like she was completely unrecognizable in that movie like her like physically she just completely like she was completely made over like her performance like she completely transformed what everyone knew about Charlize Theron. so she does have this tendency of taking on these roles where she has to commit everything, but she's obviously willing to do it, and she more than often pulls it off. Yeah, I, I was that was actually the, the point I was going to make, is that, you know, she when she broke onto yeah. the scene for Monster, you know, she's never had the level of, of I don't know, acclaim since that. I mean, I, don't, I think maybe she was nominated one more time for <laughs> since then, but not recently. If it was, it hasn't been in the last decade. Um, but then, you know, in the past few years... You have movies like Mad Max Fury Road, and sure. uh, I mean, I, I I mean I've talked about my thoughts about Atomic Blonde already, but I mean I still thought her performance was good in Atomic Blonde, and um, you know she's been in several movies over the years that are really strong performances, and, and I think that this one really can recapture you know what made her so famous fifteen years ago uh, because it, it's it's mesmerizing and how she goes to your point you know, commits completely to her role as Marlowe. You know, the fact that I read that she gained 50 pounds uh, for this movie, which was filmed back in 2016, so it's been a little while. Um, but, it, you know, she, you know, whenever I see that an actor, like, you know, gets ripped for a role or loses weight or puts on weight for a role, I'm always just like, all right, well, like, clearly they're committing, committing to this because, um, you know you see people all the time, or at least I, I have seen people in plenty of movies where, you know, oh, I know how this person was supposed to to look, or I get the impression this person was supposed to be something different than they are on screen, and to see an actor or an actress um, commit to that level, not just the not just the acting component of it, but like the physical component of it as well. Um, not just the performance, but I guess the whole, the whole uh, shebang. Um, it always impresses me, and, and then to... Not, so not only fitting in the role in that sense, but also fitting in the role in, in how she portrays this struggling mother whose life is by no stretch of the imagination perfect, but is authentic, is something that I really appreciate because I feel like so many movies that we talk about, um, you, you know, I was them thinking maybe in particular of Molly's Game and movies that we talked about, like, you know, people talk about Aaron Sorkin and, and his writing is, is, isn't how people really talk. Uh, and you get that a lot in movies. It's how you you want people to talk, not how they really talk. And and in movies, it's really easy for people to act like you want them to act, and not how they really act. And in this movie, that's this it's, it's the exact opposite. You 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 get you get acting, and you get lines that feel exactly how people would talk and 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 act, and and not how you want them to. There are so many scenes where I was like, oh my goodness, I wanted I wanted Marlo to have done this thing. Like I wanted her to like not you know, explode at Jonah after he kicks her seat a thousand times. But the fact that she's just screaming as he like cries is exactly like what you would, what I would feel like I would do in those moments. And, and the fact that she captures that so well and delivers it so authentically, uh, not, not just the, the writing and, and how it's directed, but also her performance is just, it, it's incredible to me. I, I thought it was one of the best performances I've seen uh, this side of the Oscars uh, back in March. 
Yeah, totally. And, you know, to your point, like, when Tully is introduced, like, it really does shake things up because then here's the character who is doing exactly what you want her to do. And, like, you know, seemingly can, can do no, can do no wrong. Like, she's cleaning the house. She's caring for the kids. She's being a friend to Marlo. She's encouraging Marlo to, you know, get her life back all, all the... Uh, all the time and and you know it just feels so perfect that uh you you know that something is going to go wrong yeah and i think i mean unless you want to add more about charlize theron's uh, incredible performance i think it's probably worth now talking about Mackenzie davis too yeah i mean you know we've 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 touched on it a little bit you know i said that i i think that she she needs to get more roles but you know it, like the, you use the word magnetic and i think that really kind of sums it up it's you know like <sighs> there's this trend of, of the, the manic pixie dream girl, you know, and that's kind of what we expect from her character at first. Um, but then they start to peel back the layers a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that was kind of where I was expecting it to go. Uh, you know, I, I was kind of thinking they're going to, at some point that, like I, like I said earlier, at some point they're going to have to introduce some, some complications with this character. And I, you know, I was thinking they're going to peel, peel it, peel it back. And, and we're going to see that, this totally is, you know, she's got some pain on the inside or, you know, there's something going on inside that is belied by her, her outer appearance and the way, you know, she's always buzzing about and doing everything around the house. Um, and, you know, we start to peel it back some, and, you know, we start to see that everything is not as it seems. And, I mean, especially the moment to me, which, which sort of alerted me, was the sort of strange scene where Tully is encouraging Marlo to... Uh, be more intimate with her husband and this i mean everyone in the theater kind of had a strange reaction to this scene because it is a little strange and and it ends up with Mar- uh tully in uh the the bed of ron livingston like it's and it's implied that she like sleeps with him while uh marlo is watching on well i think uh, i mean to be fair i think it's actually i think it's implied that they have a threesome but <laughs> yeah oh, yeah well that too yeah, I, I didn't even consider that. But, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I think I think that's what they were going for there. But yeah, but but I mean, going back to her performance, I got a little sidetracked there. But um, like, I, I think that she, you know, she gives off this this appearance at the beginning of being a manic pixie dream girl. But she starts introducing elements of uncertainty into her performance, um, which you know humanize this character a lot more. Um, and so, I think that she does a great job in that respect because she's get like Diablo Cody has written such a great character that I feel like there's a, there could have been a tendency to just kind of coast on the, the character and, and on the, on the dialogue that this character is given. Um, but I think that she adds something unique in there that maybe we wouldn't get with, let's say a bigger name actress. Yeah. I hear what you're saying there. And I think, I mean, Mackenzie, I, I mean, we, we had both had at least seen her before, and, and maybe most people have, even if they don't recognize her. But I think that, as you mentioned a little bit earlier in, in the recording, I think that this really is a performance that could could be a launch pad for her career. Sure. And I hope that it is. But to talk more specifically about this role, I think that I hear what you're saying about, you know, the the manic pixie dream girl. I don't know if I'm going to keep repeating that phrase, uh, but I'll say it once. And, it is a strange phrase, but for some reason it's caught on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, you, you've driven it home. Um, but I think that, that that persona is definitely something that, that you feel in the first few interactions with her. And, and, I, and I get the hesitation around feeling uneasy about that and feeling like something has to go wrong and maybe feeling like you've been plucked out of the moments in the film before 
the arrival of Tully because you get this, I mean, we've talked about it so much already, but this raw emotion of, of struggling being a parent and just wanting things to go right, but like just dealing with things as they come and, and you're never really able to get ahead of the curve in some ways. And, and then Tully shows up and, and not only helps Marlowe get her life together, but also helps Marlowe stay in front of things in some ways, uh, helps Marlowe explore aspects of her life that have been left unexplored because she has not been able to address them because she's been dealing with everything, you know, piecemeal, one at a time, as they come at her. Right. And I, never, like, nevertheless, and, I, and you can feel free to disagree with me, and I think that you might, but, like, I still in these moments really felt that there was, like, a real authenticity about this movie. Maybe it's because of my own personal experiences having met people who I feel are like uh, Tully, uh, or at least how the character, I mean, not maybe not exactly the same, obviously, but but who have similar personalities who you know are captivating in that sense and, and kind of open you up at will and you know are really not only just easy to talk to but just like easy to be around if that makes sense and I think that uh, not only does you know even though Tully may come off as a sort of larger than life greater than the average person at first i think that when what what you describe as peeling away the onion really really hammered home that like that she's still this authentic human who definitely isn't perfect and although maybe is a little bit off putting from you know in juxtaposition with someone like marlo is still a very real person who if not for this recommendation of marlo's brother craig would never enter the life of of marlo and i think that it's it's those worlds colliding that feels off-putting and maybe makes you uneasy and it doesn't seem like it's at first very linear but i think that um whatever maybe initial fear of lack of authenticity that might be emerging in the movie at that point from that particular character not from marlo but from that particular character i think is is remedied pretty quickly and and, you know after five or ten minutes i still felt like oh like this person is very different from marlo and this character is very different but it's still very real to me yeah, I mean, I think that there are are people like this to to an extent that you know they 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 they, co- they come into your life maybe and they're just like they have such this youthful energy like uh, you know especially in the context of this movie when you have Marla who's you know feeling age coming on her she's had three children now and you know uh, Tully comes in and she just has all this youthful youthful energy and she's so gregarious and she's just you know coming and going all the time and. Uh, and, it, you know, at first, there's it, it's sort of, like, intoxicating. Like, you want to relive, you know, your your glory days through this person. But And you and that's exactly what you get. Or exactly what I felt, at right. least, from Marlo. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I think that's true to some extent. And then, and then, you know, as you're saying, as the movie goes on, you they start peeling it back a little bit, and you see, well, you know, maybe this character, you know, their, their energy is, is really, like, intoxicating at first, but it starts to wear you down and you're like, at a certain point you have to look at this person and say like, you know, it's time to grow up a little bit. Um, yep. So yeah, I think that there is authenticity there, but I think that in, in, in contrast with the rest of the movie, um, you know, these scenes, I was kind of just, I was enjoying them. Like I was still enjoying these scenes. Like I, I don't want to make it sound like I didn't like them, uh, but I was enjoying them more just because there was such an entertaining dynamic between the two characters. Oh, absolutely. Not necessarily because it was, resonating with me as much and maybe maybe it is like you said like because i don't know that 
I necessarily know people like this, but I, I mean, I know that there are people like this who exist, but you know, I'm not saying that I have personal experience with anyone like this, sure. but I mean, I think that the dynamic between these characters is so entertaining, and, and I don't think that it's necessarily a turnoff that this character maybe yeah. doesn't ring as authentic to me, because I mean, I enjoy movies like, you know, to, to use the phrase again, Manic Pixie Dream Girl, like, like I, I have enjoyed movies where, which like fully lean into that stock character. Um, like, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. It just felt a little jarring at first because of how real the movie had been before that. But like I said, I think that they really bring it home in the end um, with what they reveal about Tully and about Marlowe. Like, I think that it, it, it does hammer home that authenticity again in the end. Yeah, agreed. Um, and just to speak maybe more directly to Mackenzie Davis, I think that, one, her chemistry with Charlotte Strong is incredible in this yeah, movie. Again, like... Great. I, I, I know we haven't we're still very early in the year and we're gonna get some great movies over the course of, of this but this has to be like the uh, in terms of a duo on screen it's it's incredible to me like what what they were able to to accomplish and Mackenzie Davis herself you know to again talk about kind of the life she gives to her character you know it, it, it maybe I don't know how difficult it is to write a character like this I've never written characters before myself I I don't know you know, what What the process is for writing a character. Maybe this is a character who is easier to write than a character like Marlowe. I don't know, that's not the point. But the life that Mackenzie Davis brings to this character, the delivery, the realization of the character, is something that really struck me. Because it seems like even if this is a character that's incredibly easy and straightforward to write, which it might be, I don't know. Because, uh, again, to some degree, it feels almost like a, you know, too-good-to-be-true kind of character at first. Um the the way she's it just struck me that she was able to deliver the character in this way that I'm not sure how many people would be capable of. Uh, yeah, I mean, agreed. I think it's it's it, like we've talked about. It should be a launching pad for her. Cool. All right. So, kind of changing gears. I know sometimes we talk about the plot. I think it's easier in this kind of discussion to talk about the themes of this movie because I think there are, there are two or three key themes. Uh, the first one, I think we can stay pretty spoiler free with, um, and. You know, as well as the second to some degree, although maybe less so. And then the final one really feels like it, we're gonna, that's going to be where we jump into the third act. Um, but first, I would like to start with the theme of love. It's something that I think has come up a lot throughout the course of this movie, um, especially in our, uh, in our discussion already, especially um, when we were talking about authenticity. Yes. Because I think that, that this film really tries to authentically convey what the love is between Marlowe and Drew, and you've talked about this briefly already, but I wanted to spend a little bit more time very explicitly talking about it, because it, it's throughout the whole, you see it throughout the whole film. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of just going back to what I said before, I mean, I think that you see, like, it, it is so so honest about love, because it, it, said, it, it shows that there is difficulty when you truly love someone. Like, there, there's, it's never going to be all sunshine and roses, and like, you know, I, in the first the first scene between these characters, um, we we see uh, like they have to, they have a nice little rapport like going, and it just seems like you know they're a, they're a married couple, they're having a great relationship together. Um, but then you know other things happen, like he starts making these small comments. There's you know he like for example when they go to to her brother's house, mm -hmm. um, played played by Martin Duplass, um, and they're eating dinner and and. He mentioned, I think he mentions the night nanny or something, or he mentions that the school has suggested that they get a night nanny or something like and, that. An aid. They, they wanted to get an aid for Jonah. Right, right. He mentions something that she clearly did not want him to mention. Um, and, you, you know, you see that there's this 
disconnect like that exists and you know again you get it in those scenes where uh you know they're playing video games or where he's playing video games and you know basically there's there's you know the movie's basically saying there, there's not really any any room for a conversation here like they're gonna go up they're gonna do their own thing they're gonna go to sleep yeah and, and to hammer uh, that point home the right just before that marlo had, had told tully that they were gonna go watch a movie upstairs right yeah. right um and and so like but but i think that i what i really like what the movie does towards the end and i think I can, we can talk about with really without really getting into spoilers is that it, it it like puts some of the impetus on drew um like it, it really shows that uh like it, it really sort of exposes him for not doing what he should have been doing as a as a husband and a father i mean there's there's a there's a scene where and maybe this is a little bit spoilery but um you know marlo and tully have gone out on a little bit of a bender and um and there's they're at the hospital police station i can't even remember but you know someone said he, he's talking to someone and says he's talking to a, a hospital aide or a police officer and it's, says, it's a hospital aide, um, yeah yeah it is the hospital um and he says like I, I don't know why she you know she would leave the house like this when we had our child in the house or whatever and and she's like well weren't you home and he's like oh, oh yeah like and, and you know that's kind of what what the conversation that Marlo and Tully have when they even decide to do this in the first place. They're like, well, at least Drew's there. But he's kind of, you know, the, he, his role is so like, you know, he, he goes, he, he, it's, it's almost like a, it's a very traditional like husband role, or at least that's how he seems to think of it. Like he goes to work, uh, like his wife stays home. She takes care of the kids. She's supposed to cook the meal. And when he comes home, he, you know, he gets to eat the meal. He gets to go relax because yeah. he's, you know, he's been off winning the bread during the day um and so i think that the movie really deconstructs that and in doing that um kind of shows like it just just really strengthens the the bond between these two characters and you know it shows like it 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 shows that like a key factor to love is really selflessness and uh and, and and drew is kind of forced to accept that as this movie goes on yeah, and th- and that kind of that ties in beautifully with the second theme that I was hoping to talk about, that, and that's the theme of responsibility, which I think you've touched on really well here. One of the things that I want to say about that is that this is so this is one of the points where actually I, I don't think the movie does a very good job. Um, okay. it, it might even be the well, we'll talk about the, my other main problem with the movie when we get to the third theme. But you know, this is one of the two problems is that I totally get the character arc of Drew, and I really appreciate as you described that it deconstructs the, what some might call, or some people might believe to be like a traditional, um, you know, stereotypical gender role of, uh, you know, the husband in a family. And, you know, I I think you've described that really well. I think that you've talked about how the movie attempts to deconstruct it. The thing is for me, I just feel like it's so rushed at the end. Uh, For me, it's like, he has this, you know, under, under, it is understandable that he has this massive realization, uh, you know, towards the end of the movie. Yeah, based on what happens, I think it's understandable. Yeah, no, it's understandable, but I just, I just think that I wanted more, or I, or it's just not quite good enough for me to have this one scene towards the end, and then you know, okay, yeah, he makes an, and then you see in the final scenes where he like makes an attempt to be a better husband. You know, the I think the clo- the final scene of the movie is him like helping her wash dishes or whatever. I just wish that there had been more to that because I thought it was I thought it was one of the most important parts of the movie that like he understand what was so wrong and even if it's 
believable and understandable. It, the fact that it got relegated to the last 10 minutes of the movie felt, it was like a little disappointing to me. Um, especially, again, even though I understand it's believable, I think that it, it, it was doable to have this play a more central part of the movie. And in, and in some ways, it's always there in the background. I, I get that. Like, as you say, like every single time there's a scene with Drew, it's usually him shirking responsibility or not asking questions that he may have should have been asking. And, you know, he has that, you know, tidal wave of realization at in, in that one moment we're talking about, which is believable, but still feels a little forced to me in terms of the context of the film, which I'm, I think you're going to disagree with me on. But uh, ne- nevertheless, that's, that's kind of how I felt about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do disagree, but I don't I don't want to harp on it or anything because I, I do understand where you're coming from. I just think that if you look at what the character has to go through, especially towards the end of the movie, uh, I think it's. You know, like you said, it's believable that he would go through a, a pretty significant change. Um, yeah, my my thing is that I, I don't I don't know like he, it, like the movie tells you he's gone through a significant change, but I don't really feel like it shows you that well. That's that's my thing. Like it, but, it isn't given enough time the, to. That's the unspoken coda at the end of the movie. Like you know, we see him washing dishes, which I think is like it's it's a great thing. It's a great way to show that because. It's such. It's a small little thing. It's not saying that oh, Drew's realized this and now he's gonna you know start cooking meals and he's gonna do all this stuff for the the children. It's sure. not. It's not saying that he's completely one hundred percent done a you know done a three sixty. Sure. It's just showing here's a little thing that where he's he's had a you know kind of a realization and said hey maybe I should you know help my wife with that. So I think that that's a that's a really good way to depict it and say he is changing. He hasn't had a massive change yet, but maybe that's what this scene is suggesting is going sure. to happen you know, in the future that we don't see on screen. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what it's trying to suggest. And, and for me, that's just not good enough. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, 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 I, I, no, it's, it's totally trying to, to say like, look, like everything's baby steps, right? Like you can't, you can't uh, build, you can't build Rome in a day. And, you know, it is this small thing that will, that the movie is implying will lead to big things. But I, I'm more curious about whether it does lead to big things. And that's where the movie doesn't help me out at all. Okay, I mean, yeah. yeah. Like I said, I see your argument. I don't agree, but I see your argument. Yeah, that, that's totally fair. That's totally fair. All right, no, we've 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 had some light spoilers so far, um, so to speak. But I think now well, is time to it. to really take the gloves off, talk full spoilers again. Like, if, for some reason, if you're still listening to this and you haven't seen it and you're gonna see it, please go see this movie without listening to the next part, um, because we're now we're gonna talk about. Uh, the third act and its theme, again, full spoilers, starting right now, uh, the theme of mental health and how this movie deals with that. Uh, Scott, I'll let you take the floor for this one because the third act is, it really, it really put me on the edge of my seat in terms, like, when, when the hook happened, I guess. Yeah, so I, I sort of was almost alluding to it earlier, um, in, in a couple ways. First of all, talking about the scene at the hospital. Yep. Second of all, when I said that Tully was larger than life, um, yeah. the, it turns out that she is actually larger than life. Um, because what we learn in the third act of this movie is that Tully is actually does not exist. She's and, a hallucination. Um, yep. And, and has been invented in the mind of Marlowe and that actually everything we see Marlowe or Tully doing during the movie is just Marlowe. It's, it's her doing it all by herself. Um, and that as a result of putting herself through all of this, like putting herself through everything that is necessary to try and um, raise these kids on her own, uh, she's like experiencing severe postpartum depression um, and it, it is eventually hospitalized in the end. Um, 
Although, and, although not hospitalized because of the postpartum depression. Hospitalized because she gets in a car accident after this bender that I talked about yeah. uh, with Tully. And she fell, um, she fell asleep at the wheel and right. and then crashed into a river. Yeah, and I mean, I I just think that it it handles it in such a respectful way, honestly. Like, I think that, um, you know, we really feel everything that... Um, that Marlo is going through. I mean, you know, I, I've already talked about the sum, but you know how, how much you really feel the pain that Marlo is going through. And, uh, so, it, you know, to an extent when they, when they finally do make this reveal, it's kind of like, yeah, I guess I, I could have, I should have seen that all along, maybe like, uh, and, and, you know, I talked about how I, I expected that we're going to get some kind of re- revelation about Tully's character. Well, this is not what I was expecting at all. Um, I thought that we were going to, like I said, find out that there was sort of another dimension to Tully's character, which I guess maybe you could argue that that is what happens. But um, Well, and, but and, you, I, and, you, and you get a little bit of that when she comes to, to, right before they go out into downtown New York City and, or into yeah. Brooklyn, I should say, um, and, and go on the bender that you've described. You get that. You get the hint of that, right? Like she comes in, or Tully comes into the house and says, you know, that she she's late, She there's a problem, you know, she has some issues going on in her personal life with a roommate, also maybe with, you know, someone she's been seeing or at least hooking up with, and then you get um, you get the, the hint of, all right, well, this person is a real person after all, and we're going to we're gonna find out who the real Tully is, and then you find out that she's not a real thing at yeah, all. Yeah, and, and eventually, you know, leads to the moment where they, uh, you know, Tully basically tells her, like, I'm leaving you now. Like I, I can't, I can't be with you anymore. And you're kind of like, why? Like I don't understand why. Um, and so I, you know, like I said, I just I think that the movie handles it in like a really affecting way because it's so shocking and because it, um, you know, because there's so much humor in the first part of this movie that like you just really don't see this dark twist coming to the end of it. And I think it really, you know it goes to how people see postpartum depression. Like, I mean, you know, you see someone who in the real world, like in your eyes, maybe looks perfectly okay. Maybe looks like uh, everything is going right. Maybe looks like Tully to you on the outside. Um, you don't see but, it at all is the point. You're not able no, no, to no, see no. it. You, yeah. when you, uh, what I'm saying is when you look at this person, maybe that's what you think mm. they're like. But there's really this whole other thing going on. Like they're actually experiencing this like horrible pain inside and they're you know they're they're going through depression and uh you know it, it it so it really places the impetus on you know other people to an extent to like especially drew in this case to help out you know to to pay attention to realize that you know there's other things going on here um and you know i i just think that it, it really it focuses on a mental illness that maybe isn't focused on enough in movies and it shows how 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 sometimes we our, our perception of it is very different from how it actually manifests itself yeah i i agree i think it was i mean it was such a surprise to see the the change it took at the end i i really just can't emphasize enough how little i saw it coming um because you, I mean, this isn't a, the kind of movie where you're like, oh, there might be a twist at the end of this movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not. It's not a spy movie. It's not it's a. Not M Night Shyamalan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not Red Sparrow. It's not. Um, yeah, it's not any other kind of mystery or spy movie where you know something can go crazy at the end and and, and yeah. work out. And to have that a twist, it, it was really affecting. But I I don't know if I totally agree that 
it treats this mental illness in like the most respectful way. I don't think it, it's irreverent to it by any stretch of the imagination, but I also think, and this isn't necessarily a problem, and I don't know if it's a movie's responsibility to to do any of these things. I think it's it's gonna end up come, it's gonna come down to personal preference or personal opinion about the role of of, of culture and, and how we display things. But as as you've described, and I and I agree with the points that you're making, that it does a really good job showing you through the first hour and fifteen minutes. You know, this person who's struggling, but you know, it we don't see how bad it really is because we're not. Or we're not we're not thinking about how bad it might be. Maybe that's a better way to put it. And we really we really live that through Drew, who I think you know if you really sit down and think about Drew, like wow, he is not a good husband at all. No, like not if, at all. if you really think about it, like because in that final scene at the hospital, he's telling the aide how like oh like she had a little bit of postpartum depression after their second child, like that she had postpartum depression after their second child, and you think that like everything's been totally fine with this third one, like you haven't been asking her. And like really digging into like how she's doing, you haven't thought yeah. to like. I mean, that's just crazy to me because and for like, him to you know to not even realize that you know she was doing everything herself and that Tully you know, yeah, didn't that, actually exist. I mean that that's my thing. Where like that's that I think you really have to suspend some disbelief around like him like really not being able to realize that uh, or like just like very willingly being ignorant of like things that were going on, which I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I it's possible, but that's part of. I mean, that was the part of the movie that I was just like, at the at the end, I was like, could he really like, how could he not have known one thing that was hap- that was happening? Yeah, yeah. Like, like you know, cl- between the cupcakes and cleaning and all that stuff. Like, I mean, it's ambiguous how long, like, what amount of time takes place during this movie. But like, my assumption was that it was like probably like a month or two. I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah. That, I think that's like that's oh, right. like over that much time, and I understand that he was traveling for some portion of it, mm-hmm. um, for his job. But it just it just seems really like you really have to suspend some disbelief, um, in a movie that's like really tries to ground you in authenticity. Um, anyway, I think that like it it really reflects really poorly on Drew, and I think that like that's that may or may not be intentional. It was definitely the effect that it had on me, which is also ties back into why it wasn't enough for me. Of like the end scene with the, that I was talking about earlier, with like, oh, he's doing the small thing now. Where I'm like, honestly, like, he's been a garbage husband. <laughs> like, he really yeah. needs to do more than that. And that's why I'm I'm most curious whether he does whether things kind of revert back into what they were, um, you know, say at the very beginning of the film, or whether Drew really does take on more responsibility over time and becomes like a better husband to Marlo. That's that's something that interests me so much because of how much you learn about how negligent Drew has been at the end of this movie. And I think that, you know, the the with going back to the mental health component, I I think that it's un I think it's unfortunate that the movie really doesn't like address at all the effects of postpartum depression beyond like, oh like Marlo started hallucinating a nanny that helped her make her life better and i just i just am conf- i'm confused in that it never really talks about how things get better because at the end of the movie you just see like drew and marlo cleaning the dishes and like we well, haven't I mean, really I, dealt I, hold, on, hold on one second i like we haven't really dealt at all with the postpartum depression like i understand that it's like showing and i appreciate that it's showing postpartum depression in a movie it's making it culturally like more culturally relevant it's making something that we're talking about right now which is really important but i i struggle 
to I, I think that the movie should do more also in, in like helping unpack like what that means and like how people can be more supportive and like deal with those things I mean, yeah, maybe it could it could be a little bit more of a PSA, but like, I mean, I, I feel like that at the end, you know, when they're washing the dishes, that's telling you this is how it gets better. It gets better when other people start helping her out, and not and it's not just Drew, it's not just her husband. Like, you know, there are other people in her life who who have to you know recognize this, whether it's her brother, whether it's uh, you know this the school administrators, even um, yeah, you know, to to realize what exactly is going on here. Um, mm. I, so I, and that's what I really like about the movie's treatment of this is that when it comes time to confront this issue, it doesn't shy away from it. And it doesn't just say, Oh, she has depression. Like that's really sad. We're really sad for Marlo. It's saying, no, this is, she has depression. Here's like what we can do about it. Like, and, and it's, it's on us. Like, uh, yeah, I, I agree to, with you. To part a of certain the... extent. So I think that it does that without being really heavy handed and, hammering us over the head with here's what we have to do like sure don't worry things are going to get better because who knows if they're going to get better i mean yep. that's that's the that's the unfortunate downside to this i think that's fair i think that you're right it's definitely I mean, it's definitely not heavy-handed and i and i do think that it does it does very much take the perspective of it, it's on us uh yeah. I, I think that that's something the movie does really well i just i don't necessarily agree that it, it's um it I think that you're giving the movie credit with, like, saying that, like, oh, like, this is how it gets better. The administrators, you know, get, are more understanding. Like, Drew is more, uh, like, a better husband. Her brother is, like, more supportive. I, I think that, that you don't get that from the – besides Drew. And, and we've talked about, you know, what happens at the end of the film with Drew. I, I don't know if you get that um, from the other people. And I think that maybe maybe the movie wants you to interpret that. But I'm not sure that – I didn't necessarily. I, I guess I should just leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I don't want to come off as entirely negative because I still think it's important. And, I, and to some degree, I do think it's still preference on like how you think you know mediums should handle talking and, and bringing up topics like this. But I, it's something that is, as you mentioned, is not often – you don't often see it in any form of popular culture because mental health is still such a taboo subject um, in, some, in some ways. And I think it's getting better. And I think this is an example of how maybe things do get better. Uh, in in the real world, when when you put them in the spotlight, and you know, you could argue that this movie is not going to not going to really shine a spotlight on it because uh, it's not going to do that well at the box office, probably. But uh, we're talking about it now, and that's something. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is this isn't just a, a one off. Like I think we've seen this this has become a trend, like with confronting these sort of mental issues. I mean, you know. The thing that comes to my mind, and this is just a TV show, and it's probably coming to my mind because there's a new season coming out this week, but 13 Reasons Why, the Netflix series, really, uh, you know, hits on some of the same issues, not in the sense of this is depression that results from having children, but, you know, in the sense that here is depression that goes on in, you know, everyday lives, that it's in a person who you see every day and you don't necessarily realize what's going on until something dramatic happens. Um, and sometimes it's too late to help the person. Um, and, yeah. and it also, you know, really takes the it's on us mentality. So I think that we're trending in the right direction and that this is another example of a movie which makes similar points. Sure. All right. I think we've 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 really talked about this one a lot, and I'm glad we did because I think there's a lot to talk about. But let's go ahead and enter our little wrap-up phase. What was your favorite scene? You've already mentioned that you have a clear one, so let's hear what it is. Yes. Uh, so it's, it 
was one of the scenes of the school administrators, and it's actually the one where Marlo uh, actually flies off the handle um, at this administrator who um, basically kicks Joan out of the school or, or, you know, says that Jonah needs to go to a different school. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly the, the part where they're saying, oh, well, Jonah, he's quirky. He's quirky. Like, that to me was one of the most authentic moments in the whole movie. And, like, I can personally relate to this moment, um, unlike I couldn't to a lot uh, to a lot of other moments in this movie. Because, like, I've heard people use that exact word. Like, that's exactly what people say. And, and I think Marlo even says something like, no, that you're just saying that because you don't want to say he's retarded or something like that. Like, that's, that's exactly what people say when they're trying to mask, like, oh, I don't like this person or I have this prejudice, like... Um, against this person for an arbitrary reason like they'll say something like oh well he's just quirky and like it it just felt so real to me and i i just love this moment of marlo calling out calling this woman out on her bs because i think that's something that that happens so often and that needs to be done more often and so i thought it was a really powerful moment in the movie yeah i agree that was a really powerful moment and then also to follow up on that when she goes back outside and just like screams in her car I, i i yeah I think that it's a... I was like, dang, I feel for you. Exactly. No, that was... I agree that that was a moment where I was like, you know, I've never... I've never been in a position like this, but I know that, you know, from from what I'm feeling right now, after that scene, that's exactly what I would I would do. And, you know, given given similar situations or parallel situations, even if it's not around, you know, a, a child, my own child, and getting kicked out of a school that's a good school that I want, I want him to be in, or her, um, I, I really felt that pretty deeply, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so my favorite scene um, is a tough one because I think that uh, we've talked about Isle of I mean we talked about Isle of Dogs how it was difficult to pick out a scene because it's such a it's such a flowing movie in some ways and I, and I think that it's it, I don't mean to say that Tully is like Isle of Dogs in that sense because I think there are clear sections and breaks in the movie that that aren't similar at all to Isle of Dogs but I think that it's similar in that in the it, within like the discrete chunks of the movie we'll call them like the three acts of the movie. Uh, everything flows so seamlessly during that. It, it hardly feels like there's any break in the yeah, I agree in the flow. And so it was. It's kind of hard for me to to pick a a, a singular scene out of that, uh, other than like the chunks that they're in. And I already talked about how much I enjoyed Mackenzie um, Davis and Charlize Theron together on the screen. So it, it, it's almost just like their ongoing interactions. And and the one that sticks out to me the most is the one right before a scene that you described earlier where they're they're outside in their above ground pool that's empty they it doesn't have any water in it and they're drinking i think sangrias and talking they're talking about a uh, uh, drew's uh, porn search history and like such in such like an authentic way and like the the way that that dialogue is delivered and and you know the the punchline being that like what his like his search history is like isn't that crazy where like Marlo had hyped it up to be like something like really crazy that that Tully it's was like worried the, about. His fantasy is like the waitress from his past. Yeah, the the waitress at a like a diner that wears like a very specific uniform and like that was his search history and like Marlo was talking about like his you know he's not into anything particularly weird but there's this one thing and like hypes it up to Tully and Tully's like oh that's it and I was yeah. like that, that struck it made me laugh so genuinely and, and that scene you know. Although I don't know if I've, I don't think that I've ever had a conversation with anyone like that. It, it just felt so authentic and exactly how that conversation would go in real life. Yeah, um, I think so. And so I think that's a microcosm for a lot of the movie, and and that was a scene that stuck out particularly in my mind. I agree. Cool. So let's let's give let's give Tully a rating. I'm I'm interested to hear where you come down on this. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I said that I think this is one of the best movies of the year. Um, and so on that note, I'm going to rate it, uh, give it the, the same rating that I gave to the other movie, which I would put at the top of the list for yeah. um, 2018. I don't even know what year it is, but um, <laughs> and that's Thoroughbreds. And, and so I'm going to give this a, a 9.5. Wow, 9.5. It's a great I think it, it is, it's a home run for Jason Reitman and Diablo Cody, a, a real return to form. Yeah, I agree. I, I was Right before we started recording, I was describing this movie to you as like, you know, I don't know that I love this movie. Um, I don't know that I like everything this movie does, and I don't know if this movie succeeds in everything that it tries to do. But it's, it's, so, it, it's so brave, um, and, and I think it's worth uh, acknowledging what it tries to do. And it takes a movie, you know, like we mentioned, that it, it's not a movie you expect a twist at the end. And it twists at the end. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't give you what you like. The the general category of what you expect from this movie, even if the relationship between Marlo and Tully would fall apart, you know. Uh, and I admire it for that. I admire it bringing up topics, um, even if I think that there needs to be more done. And and I will come out more negative on this film for reasons that I think will be obvious to our listeners because I've I've been a little bit more critical of particularly uh, Drew's character and how. It develops. I don't, and I also don't think Ron Livingston's performance is like that inspiring. Uh, personally, I may, it's probably just me, and have I'll, I'll never be able to watch him and not see Office Space, um, <laughs> for better or worse. But I'm going to come out as uh, an eight point two on this movie. It's it's so good. It, it and I mean that in a in a way that it's it's so worth watching. Um, even if even if you you know if if you watch it and you enjoy it like you have Scott and you, you think it's a home run nine point five, that's great. Um, you know I come out a little bit more negative. And I think that even if you come up more negative than I do, I think this is a movie worth seeing, absolutely, um, for, for what it does. Yeah. All right. I think I should just about do it for Tully. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll be diving straight into our discussion topic of the week uh, before we talk about movie trivia, showdown, and some news. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. It's time for our discussion topic of the week. And Scott, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what we're talking about this week as it is a continuation from last time. Sure. So uh, our new trend with these discussion topics is that we are going to go through each year when we have been uh, alive on this planet um, and tell what our favorite movie was from that year and also maybe one or two honorable mentions um, because, you know, a year's worth of movies, it's hard. It's, it's often hard to distill it down to just one. Um, and so last week, uh, we talked about the year 1995. Uh, I went with Clueless. Scott went with Seven as our favorite movies from that particular year. Um, and so moving right along, we were going to go into 1996. Um, and again, I believe we have some honorable mentions. Um, so if you want to start us off with what your honorable mention pick is, perhaps... Yeah, sure. I, I know. I, I don't think it would ever enter in the conversation of best movies from 1996, but of course yeah, that's not the conversation we're, we're having. Yeah, no, and of course that's not the conversation we're having. But you know, it's a it's a franchise we're going to be discussing later this year, and I'm, I think it's come up in the past too, maybe in a, in a either a prior discussion topic or maybe on our very 
first episode that we did when we talked about, uh, uh, you know, the 10 different questions we went through. But 1996 saw the original Mission Impossible movie released, which, of course, is Tom Cruise and John Voight in, in the leading roles. And, you know, it's definitely one of the better ones, in my opinion, I, I think. I mean, there's been a, quite a few others in sure, five. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a very memorable movie. I always enjoy it. I haven't revisited it in a while, but I might with the new one coming out this summer. Um, it's just really good, and, and I actually had forgotten until I just Googled 1996 movies that it came out in 1996. Yeah, it has that, I mean, you know, the thing I always think about when I think of this movie is that one amazing set piece where he is, you know, dangling from the ceiling, like, Absolutely. trying to download something off the computer. Um, it's, it's like, such a great suspenseful scene, like, where, you know, in action movies, in big-budget action movies nowadays, you know, so many action scenes are just wild shootouts and tons of special effects and everything but this scene is just like it's pretty much completely silent because i mean it has to be um and it's just tom cruise hanging from this from the ceiling and you know even something as simple as a drop of sweat going off of his glasses is like incredibly becomes incredibly suspenseful um so yeah I, i agree i think it's one of the one of the better ones along with you know two recent ones that they've done in the series um for my uh honorable mention pick i'm also going to go with a, a, a genre film um and it's a movie that sort of uh reinvented how we think about horror movies in a way because it is one of the first horror movies maybe really the first which sort of acknowledged uh what is cliche about a lot of horror movies it, it, it acknowledged horror movie cliches and, and sort of turned them on their head and that is Scream, of course, um, which went on to have a popular franchise uh, of its own with uh, with three sequels, all of which I think are, are worth watching. Um, and but but you know this first one is probably the best in the series, um, just because it feels so fresh even nowadays. Because you know we horror, I feel like horror has become more popular than ever nowadays, um, and so people have become even even though there are more more good horror movies nowadays than there probably were back then um and i think people are are certainly still very familiar with you know the cliches with oh you know never yeah hook up with someone in a horror movie you're gonna die or never you know say i'll be right back because you won't be right back um you know these are these are the things that you know everyone acknowledges nowadays when they see horror movies but scream sort of um Took took those uh, cliches and, and satirized them in a uh, in a clever way, but at the same time, it's also you know it's also a great horror movie in and of itself. Um, you know, with with these this group of teenagers being haunted by uh, by the ghost face killer in Woodsboro, um, and you know a, a good cat like a very good cast like for the time it was really just like a lot of very hip um, very hip uh, a very a very hip cast for the time with. Neff Campbell and Matthew Lillard. Um, Courtney Cox, and, Drew Barrymore, David Arquette. Sure, yeah, yeah. Courtney Cox, David Arquette. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of names that were popular at the time. I mean, like, Courtney Cox obviously was on Friends. Neff Campbell was on Party of Five, so they were all on, you know, popular TV, sh- uh, popular TV shows at the time. Uh, so they, you know, they really, uh, they, they really cast the movie well, and I think it, it's very uh, understandable to see why it went on to sponsor such a a big franchise uh, to spawn such a big franchise and why it still resonates to this day. I think Wes Craven uh, did a great job with this movie. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of the few slasher movies that I can say that I've honestly enjoyed. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, probably because it does, uh, it, it does do things in such a clever way, but uh, moving on now 
to our favorite selection. And actually, I think we're going to talk about <coughs> the same movie sort of. Um, yeah, there's a clear, there's a clear winner in the, in this. Yeah, one. because there is a, a movie, at least in our perspective, which stands out, uh, stands very tall above the rest of the pack for 1996. Although there were some other movies we could have talked about. Um, so, would you like to tell us what that movie is? Sure. You know, it's it's it came up a couple months ago when we talked about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, because it has an actress who's in that movie in it, and that is Fargo. Uh, of course, Francis Francis McDormand is who I'm referring to, but this film also stars Steve Buscemi, uh, William H Macy, and directed by Peter the Peter Stormare. Yeah. yeah, Peter Stormare. How can I fit Peter Stormare? Impossible to forget. He's such a memorable character actor, and then of course oh, yes. directed by the Coen Brothers. Yeah, I mean, this is like this was the movie where they really made their name, like. Blood Simple sort of was like their first movie and kind of put them on the map a little bit, but people were really sort of blown away with this by this movie when it came out, and I think you know it still resonates. I mean, it's it's in, it's a TV show now. Like you know, just in yep. the past couple of years, we've had Fargo the TV series for the start, and I personally haven't watched it. Um, but I mean, this movie it, it's such a unique blend of comedy and like really really dark crime drama like i watched this movie not that long ago actually um and i you know i had forgotten just how dark it gets in some parts yep. um and i mean and, to, to also give a shout out to someone else who's a part of this film who maybe flies under the radar but you know roger deakins does the cinematography for this movie so yes roger deakins great cinematography like um some some really like beautiful shots in this movie and also carter burwell's um score i like i think is spectacular like the 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 main song in this movie like the i don't want to say the theme song but kind of like the the title song from Mm -hmm. this movie is like majestic like it's it's one of my favorite like orchestral pieces of music in a movie um and uh yeah i mean the the performances are amazing like obviously france mcdormand won an oscar um i think william h macy was nominated um and like the francis mcdormand it's just such an unforgettable character and performance the way like she has this sort of quirky like yank like midwesterner humor like alongside everything that is going on and of course she's you know her character's pregnant but she's just so determined like the entire time that she's gonna uh, you know get to the bottom of of what happened um and you know and at the same time william h macy i think is is great as like this sort of hitchcockian he, he's like the classic hitchcockian like protagonist of normal guy who somehow gets in over his head even though he has good intentions um and uh and so yeah i mean this is this is a classic uh, a modern classic for a reason yeah absolutely um i don't know if i have more to add because you've covered it so thoroughly but it just to go through the you were talking about awards it, it was i believe nominated for seven academy awards if, if i'm remembering correctly but winning for of course francis mcdormand and then the Cohen, uh, the Cohen brothers for the screenplay, but then also you know nominated for you know cinematography for Roger Deakins and Best Picture. Uh, the Cohen, well, I think technically Joel Cohen was nominated for Best Director. Um, I don't know how that works, but uh, Francis McDormand's husband in real life, actually. I didn't even know that. Well, wow. yeah, that makes more sense then, I guess. Did wait, were yeah. they married before this movie? Uh, I do not know that. I, I think that maybe they were. They were, yeah. Nineteen eighty four is when they got married. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have much more to add because it's it's such an amazing film and um, it's it, it's easy to even though it's a crime drama, it's it's easy to revisit it too. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, you you can always find something new. Absolutely. 
All right, I think, uh, so 1996 is a unanimous vote for Fargo. There are other movies, uh, to, to be fair, like uh, Train Spotting. Uh, I think Jerry Maguire was that year. Yeah. Um, so there are, there are other good movies that a came Time out. to Kill, good, a good lawyer movie. Absolutely, um, yeah, good courtroom drama. Um, the, the Rock for Nicolas Cage fans and Sean Connery. Um, Happy Gilmore. Yeah, definitely one of Michael Bay's better movies, in my opinion. Like, yeah, no, it's a good movie. That's probably that's probably not high praise, but it actually does have some some good parts of it. Yeah, I mean, like Nicolas Cage maybe fell off the wagon a little bit in the two thousands, but I mean he he was a good actor in the nineties, right? Like, maybe, yeah, am I going too far? Especially with Sean Connery as well. Yeah, and Ed Harris, I believe, is also in that movie. So yeah, um, yeah, that that I think those are also good movies. Uh, I, I mentioned Kenneth Branagh's uh, Hamlet, which came out in nineteen ninety six, which I mean, probably yeah. a little too long for most people, but I think it's like I think. The thing about that is, it does like it is. It does have some like pretty clear flaws in it, but it's just like such an impressive achievement that he was able to stage the play. Like he, like you know, he they, they do the entire play and they they do every single line, and that's not something you see you ever see with Shakespeare adaptations. Like there are always um, edits made when they're when they're uh, adapted for the screen, whether you realize it or not. Uh, but, even you know, when they're even, yeah, I mean, even when they're not. Even when we're not talking about a movie adaptation, like hardly ever is there a word for word, like yeah, large mean, yeah, scale production yeah, of with novels. It's certainly not done. Yeah. Well, no, no. I, I'm talking about even like if you're looking at adaptations of Shakespeare plays in the theater, right, yeah. you hardly ever see them done word for word. There's always yeah, like directorial yeah, yeah. flourishes of removal of lines or slightly changing something, or it never. It, hardly ever have I seen a, a large scale production that is like word for word authentic to a to a play. Yeah, and that's, I think that's the appeal of it, is that it is so authentic. At the same time, you know, I think Kenneth Branagh's performance, it it would probably work better in a theater. I mean, and, you know, he is a, sure. that's he has a theater background. I mean, that's, he has his own theater company nowadays, so yep. um, it, it's understandable. But, so, I mean, I think that it, it is flawed, but you would expect that from a movie with such high ambitions. And, I mean, that being said, I do think it is one of the best Shakespeare adaptations um, to be put to film to date. Cool. Yeah. I think that, that, uh, again, I think that I know that I feel this way. I think Scott feels the same way as well. Like Fargo stands above these pretty clearly. It wasn't a difficult decision to choose Fargo, but there are still some very solid movies in 1996. Yeah. All right. All right. Switching gears a little bit from 1996 to 2018. It's time to talk a little movie trivia showdown. It's been quite the two weeks for showdown matches, uh, especially considering we probably like should be more focused on title week coming up this week. But the showdown has had quite a lot to offer us in the past fortnight. Why don't you uh, walk us through it? Yeah, so I mean, there were there obviously there were two team matches, two singles matches, and the team matches both very enjoyable. Um, we had uh, the Wild Bears coming away with a victory over the Kingsmen and uh, critically acclaimed beating Superhero News. But I think the real focus that we're, where we want to talk a little bit more in depth about are the two singles matches we had. Um, so last week we had Roka versus Snyder. Um, obviously a big... It was a, it was a number one... No, it was not a number one contender match, but... It was for a number one contender the, spot. The number the, we had, the yeah. winner gets a number one contender spot. Um, so, you know, obviously a lot on the line. Roka was trying to make a comeback, trying to kind of go through the, the lion's den one by one um, after beating JTE um, at the live event. Um, and, you know, this was a very, very tight match. Um, and it, it, it turned in the end on... Uh, it almost turned in the end on a gaffe by Jeff Snyder um, in a final round. 
Snyder led pretty much throughout the match, um, and he was in the position of the final round where if he was to answer all of his questions correctly, then Europa could not defeat him. Um, but he was asked um, a question. What was the What was the movie again? I, I, I'm forgetting it now. Uh, it was. Are you talking about Roca's question that he missed? Oh no no no! I know Snyder was asked in what movie did Meryl Streep say the dingo ate my baby? Um, and it looked like he wasn't going to be able to pull the an- answer at all. Um, but then finally he came up with a cry in the darkness. Yeah. And fa- in fact, the name of the movie is, is a, a cry, cry in the, the dark. dark. Yeah. Um, which I was like, dang, I want, Ro- I, like, I wanted Roka to win this match, but I was like, if Snyder loses because of that, um, then that's just going to be brutal because he did, he did point out afterwards that it was a, a, a mistake that his partner JTE would probably be more likely to make. Um, but this, uh, luckily for Jeff, uh, it bounced back to Roca, or Jeff hit his five-pointer after that. Yeah. Um, and so the, it was on Roca's shoulders, basically. He had to hit his five-pointer to win the match. Um, and he was asked a horror question, and I told you this, but pretty much for the moment, they said horror was the category. I kind of thought Roca was screwed because that's definitely one of his worst categories. Yeah. Um, and, and I still, yeah, I stick by my what I told you after we were talking. We were talking about this after the after I had watched it because I think that I watched it a little bit later than you did. Um, but like he had a chance. Like that's a recent movie. It was pretty. It was like pretty well critically well received. So it's like a movie that more people would have seen. Um, sure. But, I mean, it, someone of Roka's capability, I think, always has a chance, even though it is one of his his weaker categories. I mean, he's gotten hard questions right in the past, and I mean, you know, as you rightfully point out, like you know, this maybe is one where you would expect him. Uh, to to be more tuned to than others because the question was about what's the name of the goat that is possessed and the, the witch, witch. Yep. Um, and the answer is Black Philip um, which Roca did not pull um, and so Jeff Snyder um, gets a number one contender spot and he was instantly challenged in his um, pre post match interview by William Bibiani who of course has the number one contender match from the free for all. Uh, from being the MVP in the free-for-all. So we will be getting Bibiani versus Snyder at some point in the future. Although who knows um, who the winner of that match will get in the title match because we still have the singles title match next week between Clark and Sam Levine uh, to determine uh, who who is going to be holding the belt probably when that match goes down. Um, But then moving ahead to this Friday, we had... I mean, I think it's safe to say it's probably an all-timer. Certainly from a specific, from a statistical standpoint, um, one of the greatest singles matches in Schmodown history um, between the professor, Lon Harris, and big-time Ethan Irwin. Um, and when we heard, both of us, I think, when we heard this matchup was going to happen, we're, we're pretty excited. Yeah, for sure. Um, because of the possibility of something like what ended up happening to happen. And that was pretty much a flawless game from both players. Um, Juan Harris, he, uh, he ended up with a perfect round in the first round, and he hit the bonus, so he had nine points to even seven going into the second round. It was and a was pretty kind of, easy first round. I, I, I don't know, maybe it was just me, but like I knew all the answers. So Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't remember off the top of my head some of the questions, um, but I don't remember thinking it was especially difficult. However, what I will say is that when the match got into rounds two and three, yes. It got incredibly difficult. Yes, like, it did. <laughs> oh my I would goodness. say normally on a Schmodown episode, I can answer like 70 to 75% of the questions, but like I knew like maybe one handful like uh, of the of the r- remaining questions in this match. Um, like Lon Harris, he, he spun Spinner's Choice and picked famous actors and actresses. 
which, you know, you would think, like, is not the hardest category, but, like, I didn't know any of the questions. They were asking about very obscure movies. Um, however, Lon was able to... Uh, to he got five to points. Very, yeah, he got five points in this round. Um, and then Ethan spun twice, and he ended up with thrillers. And actually, it was funny, you know, we're talking about how difficult the questions were, but they were so difficult that... There was a spectacular, easy, spectacularly easy question that came up in Ethan's round that, like, I was even more taken aback by because all the other questions were so hard. And that was when they asked, you know, in what thriller do we find the serial killer, Buffalo Bill? Uh, and it was just, like, such a stark contrast to um, the, the rest of the questions that they were asked in this match um, that it's no surprise that it took Ethan about 0.2 seconds to answer Silence of the Lambs. Um, and so... Eventually, um, we, we came down to, you know, uh, Lon leading going into the final round. Um, Ethan, uh, both players hit their first two questions. Then it bounced to Ethan. He had to hit his five-point question, basically to force Lon to answer. Um, and he gets a question about, I think the movie was called Drive Me Crazy. Um, personally, I had never even heard of the movie. Um, and yet, somehow, Ethan took about two seconds and then figured out that the act- lead actress in this movie was Melissa Joan Hart, which, like, I was not even aware that she did movies. Like, I thought she, like, I thought it was Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and, like, that was it for her. <laughs> um, but somehow he, he answered uh, Melissa Joan Hart, which even Christian was shocked that he got it right, to make the game 24 to 20. Um, and I, I will point out that, like, I did the math, and, like, 26, I think, is the perfect score in a... In a uh, singles match that you can get so Ethan was just two points short of a perfect um game like a, a literally a perfect game um and well it's it's tough because with, with steals it's hard that's true I guess, that. I guess if you stole all the questions you could get like yeah because he, cause he points, did steal but, he did he steal one or no he missed a steal no but it, I, yeah. you know I think in the in that scenario you would be looking at not a situation where they would be answering all three of their questions in the final round. You'd probably be looking at like a knockout if, if they were to steal a lot of points. Yeah. Um, so somewhere around 26 is going to be like the perfect game. Um, and so Ethan had 24. Lon could have had 25. However, he could not come up with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost um, as the voices of the police officers and the adventures of 1010. Um, yeah. And I only knew just, Simon Pegg. I didn't remember Nick Frost. I had no idea. But despite so, despite trailing for like all of this match, um, Ethan Irwin was able to come away with the victory, and he is now two and zero. And he has his sights set next on the Godfather Drew McQueenie, in which should be a match on the level of the one that we just saw. Like I'm, I'm pretty excited for that one. I don't know about you. Yeah. I mean, I have to ask you now. You were skeptical that he was the real deal after his first match because he, admittedly, he spun Spinner's Choice, which is always sometimes it can make things pretty easy in the second round. But like, do you think Ethan Irwin is the real deal yet? Uh, I'm pretty convinced at this point. Um, I saw a stat today where um, he has he had an 88 percent accuracy, I think, which is the best accuracy ever through just two matches um, for a Schmodown competitor. And when you combine that with the free for what all. he did in the free for all, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think he's proven himself. I like I, the thing I just am surprised about is I can't believe that it cr- took Christian so long to get him um, in the league. Like, uh, but I mean, I, I think it won't be too long before he gets a title chance, especially if he beats McQueenie. Um, but I mean, 
mean, speaking of title chances, we have um, some some big title matches next week. Um, yep. Once once again, for what seems like the umpteenth time, the uh, Patriots will uh, be at risk of, of losing their first ever match um, as they go up against above the line for the second time. Um, if they win, then they'll go to ten and zero, which is ridiculous. Um, however, if they lose, then they will lose the belt for the first time. Um, but of course, they will probably get an immediate rematch. You know, I, I don't really know. Like, what's your feeling on this match? Like, I, you know, coming into the spectacular last year when these two teams played, I kind of thought that the the run was going to end for the Patriots because above the line is such an impressive team with Sam and Drew McQueenie. But uh, you know, the Patriots—they somehow just—they seem to have some kind of magic that goes on when they get in these matches. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I was—I was pretty much exactly what I was going to say because if you look at these people on paper, like, I mean, disagree with me. I—I I, I mean, I like Jeff Schneider. I think he's really good in this league, both in singles and obviously. I mean, and in, in, you can't dispute he's good in teams. Um, but on paper, like Sam Levine and Drew McQueenie, they're better than both of these guys. I think. And yeah, I think I think that the two. I don't know. They just—it seems like they pick each other up so well, like in these team matches. Like when one of them has a bad match, the other one really comes through. Um, yep. And I mean, it, you know, it's not just like I think that they just had luck go their way to some extent. Because if you look at their past title matches, I mean, they've had like most of these matches have been really close. Like above the line, could have won if they'd answered their five point question. I was watching just the other day. I rewatched the match when they played Team Trek, which actually went to sudden death. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, Team Trek took them to sudden death. Wolves of Steel, when they played them, I think lost by like a point or two. Modoc took them to sudden death. So, I mean, all of these matches have been incredibly close. It just comes down to, in the end, you know, maybe the familiarity with playing in title matches or maybe just being able to answer that one more question. Um, but, I mean, I don't know. You know, both Sam and Drew are playing so well right now. It's hard to it's hard to pick against them, but it's also hard to pick against 9-0. and Yeah, I mean, I don't... Because I'm a little bit newer to the showdown, I'm not 100 percent sure. But now Sam has way more experience in title matches. He knows the you know the buzz, yeah. the the quick buzzer round is so important a lot of the time. Uh, can it can really produce huge swings? Just ask Rachel Cushing. Um, yeah. And uh, I I wonder if more experience in title matches now will will have an effect on this and and will maybe pull uh, or or boost above the line a couple more points, which would have been the difference the last time they played them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's going to be... I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it. Um, and then on Friday, we have the singles title match, which I talked about earlier. Um, the Fife Club going up against uh, above the line, Sam Levine, um, the current title belt holder. He has one successful defense, beating Rachel Cushing. Um, and now he'll go up against Rachel's partner in Clark Wolf, who, you know, we've seen her have her ups and downs in the leagues. I mean, we've seen her beat some really high-quality players, um, but we've also seen her lose to people like Josh McCuga. Um, well, she's beaten so, Sam. She's beaten Sam before. So Yes, she has beaten Sam before. However, that was uh, you know a while ago when... And not a title but, match. So Yes, and before Sam went on like his run, I think he's won like seven or eight consecutive matches now in the singles league. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean... it both people are in a very different place from where they were in the last time when they played. Um, you know, and I have to say, like, I don't, I, I, I kind of think I'm kind of going with Sam. I think he's going to win this. Um, but, and, and I, I really like both of these, um, people. Like I, they're two of my favorite personalities in the Schmodown. So I'm happy with whoever wins, 
But I kind of would like to see Clark pull this one out just because of the Fife Club and because, you know, I kind of want to, I really want to see the Fife Club take over this league and start. And I, I think, you know, getting a belt obviously would be, would be a great way to start that out. Yeah, it also shut, would shut all the people up who were like, you know, with her number, you know, with her getting the number one contender spot. Saying that she didn't really deserve it. Exactly, yeah. yeah that's what, that, I'd like that too. I, I agree though, I think Sam will probably win. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, it, it should be a good match because, like, you know, the two of them are, like, actually really good friends in real life. So um, I think that there'll be a good, you know, dynamic between the two of them. And whatever happens in the match, uh, you know, should be should be good. And, I mean, who knows how long they'll hold on to the belt. I mean, it seems like the singles league is so loaded right now with, you know, the likes of McQueenie, Ethan Irwin, Lon Harris. I mean, Viviani's playing better than ever. Stacey Howard's playing really well. Even Makuka's 3-0 and this year. Um, so, I mean, the ultimate showdown tournament at the end of the year is going to be going to be lit. Like, we may have, like, uh, a lot of upsets like we had last year. Yeah, I mean, the only reason the Patriots still have the title belt is because Ethan Irwin is not yet in the team's division. So, That's we'll true. see. I, don't, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't, I don't know if there's anyone really that he would, that out there right now that he would team up with. Like, mostly everyone is teamed up. Um, so... Uh, we will see um, Lon yeah, Harris. Wh- whether he decides to enter the team division in the future. But um, He and Lon I Harris, think, man. Yeah, he and Lon, maybe. I don't know. I, I, Lon kind of has this weird thing going with the school of the elite, and Cody and Cobster and all the uh, interns, basically. Yeah, um, I, I saw so. somewhere where it was like, what if, what if Lon and, and Cody entered the team's division? Because I mean, like, oh they actually like, would complement each other very well. So. Yeah, yeah, it would, it would be interesting to watch. Um, but as far as other future matches we have coming up, uh, Christian announced this week that we've got um, a singles match um, between Stacy Howard and Josh McCuga that is going to be in a couple of weeks. Um, like I said, two players who have been playing pretty well this year. Um, I, and, and honestly, I'm going to win either way because both of them are on my fantasy team. Um <laughs> But I kind of think maybe Stacey will pull this one out. But then we also have the stipulation team match coming up between DC Movie News and uh, Team Action, which I think could be interesting because I, I really think something's going to happen with Mike Kalinowski and his storyline in that match because, I don't know, he his, he's in like a weird place right now in terms of the storyline. I wasn't even sure if he was going to be coming back with the DC Movie News team. So uh, I'll be interested to see what happens with the storyline in that match. Yep, and then we also have uh, Emma Fife against Janine the Machine. So Right, that's going to be the Patreon match for this month. So hopefully yep. the Golden Mike can get a win for the Fife Club. Yes, we shall see. We shall see. All right, so to finish up today's episode, we have some headlines to go through, as we always do. Uh, first, I don't know if this is one that's going to require much discussion at all, but a couple, I think like a week and a half ago now, Roman Polanski and Bill Cosby were kicked out of the Academy for the Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Uh, good riddance. I think Roman Polanski is suing, but uh, we'll see if uh, if that comes through for him or not. Yeah, it's, it's pretty sad, honestly, because, I mean, they're both great at what they did. And, uh, and so, it, you know, it, it's, it's a real shame that um, we, it's had to come to this. I mean, it... Yeah, it's it's a real shame that they are shitty people. So, I mean, uh, oh yeah, that, that's what yeah. I mean because I like you know I like I said we we should be able to look up to artists like this and and really admire them for for what they for the great work that they've done in the past. But rather than the damage that, they've now done to women, everything is besmirched by you know what they've done. 
Yep, and uh, I hope that they are remembered for uh, what they've done, not their movies, um, because these yes, people should yeah, not no, be no, idolized. I certainly think that they will be now. Yeah, um, and we'll move on from that. All right, so you brought on my radar, which I had somehow missed. That Mar- I mean, I think we've talked about this before, or it was mentioned before, maybe, but it has been confirmed. It's now confirmed. That, yeah, yeah, now confirmed that Margot Robbie uh, is it will be starring in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, speaking of Roman Polanski, she will be playing Roman Polanski's uh, ex-wife, Sharon Tate, who uh, was, of course, um, killed by the Manson family. Um, yep. So, I mean, I think this is going to be uh, a great movie. Like, I've seen a couple other names in talks um, this week. Also, like, Timothy Oliphant and Burt Reynolds, I think, were the other two names. Which Burt I saw. Reynolds? Wow. Um, He's still doing movies. Which are, yeah, which are just rumored at this point. Um, but, you know, if this is one of Tarantino's last movies, then... You know, it'd be great to see him go out with such a huge cast. Absolutely. Yeah. David Gordon Green is listed to direct the new Friday Night Lights movie. Another another uh, news headline you passed my way. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how this goes. You know, I, I don't. he's not a name that's going to be familiar to everyone. Um, but I think that he's actually a really good choice for this movie because one thing you can say about David Gordon Green's movies when you look through his filmography with movies like George Washington and all of the real girls and... Um, uh, Snow Angels, that's the movie I was trying to think of. Um, like, he, his movies, like, I think one word which you could always describe them is, is very atmospheric. Uh, and I think that that's perfect, honestly, for Friday Night Lights, because I think one of the things that made the TV show of Friday Night Lights in particular was so so successful and, like, so great for, for five seasons was that it wasn't really about football. It was about the town of Dillon. And, like, it, it really, like, firmly... Uh, placed you in this world of you know small town texas and not just what football means but what family means and what all of these relationships mean um so i think that you know someone who is so good at at at, uh, portraying certain environments and atmospheres on film is going to do a great job with this movie although i mean you know i'm not really sure whether we need a reboot of this this um story considering that they're they're just rebooting the book and like i think the original movie was 2004 so not that long ago yeah i was wondering the same thing myself like do we need another friday lights friday night lights movie i don't know i feel like it's very oversaturated at this point like i like i'm talking about maybe david gordon green could bring something unique to it because he 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 does come at it from a different perspective from i forget who directed the first one was it billy ray maybe um but, I, I mean, that one was more of a conventional sports, you know, crowd-pleasing movie. Um, but I can definitely see David Gordon Green kind of taking a different direction with it. So, we'll see. Uh, I think the original one was Brian Grazer. Okay. Well, oh, yeah, no, sorry. Peter Berg. Peter Berg. Oh, yeah. Well, well of course it was. Yeah, because he then went on to do the TV series. Sorry, yeah. Brian Grazer produced the film. Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah uh, you said David Gordon Green. I was trying to remember where I had recently seen his name from. And he's directing the, the new Halloween movie that's coming out this year. Oh, um, I did not realize that. So that's speaking of atmospheric movies for you. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So David Gordon Green. Uh, we'll stay tuned. I, I mean, it, that movie's still super early stage. I mean, I hadn't even heard that there was going to be a new Friday Night Lights movie. So it's got to be a couple years out. Yeah, that was the first I'd heard about it. Too. Yeah, okay. Well, all right. So, in in one more uh, casting addition, uh, Helena Bottom Carter is joining the cast of The Crown next season as Princess Margaret. Uh, for those of you not necessarily caught up on what The Crown is doing, it's like shifting time. Uh, it's shifting. It's like moving forward in time, right? Uh-huh. My understanding. So, like the cast is just getting wiped out, and then uh, a, a bunch of new cast members are being added. And Helena Bottom Carter is the newest member of this cast, and and that's cool. I, I not someone I see that much of, but is a really great character actor. 
actress, I should say. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see her play a more straight-laced role because she's usually playing like really wacky characters. Absolutely. And then the last bit of news, um, just just on the Infinity War hype train and movie train, revenue train continues, chugging right along. It's already passed $1.3 billion at the Worldwide Box Office in just three weeks' time. Although, I mean, that was definitely the the hope for it because uh, they moved it forward a week to give it some more, well, what I would imagine is a little bit more breathing space between b- before Deadpool 2 comes out next week. And then, of course, Solo comes out the week after that. So I imagine it will still be getting a lot of revenue next week. But with these new releases coming out that are huge, that are, that will also be huge and might also push a billion, um, it, some of its uh, some of its share of the peop- of seat you know seats being filled will definitely uh, evaporate next week. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but still, one point three billion in three weeks. I mean, that's a nice pull. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, for real. All right. I think that should just about do it for episode 10 of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Yeah, actually, I want to make a plug. Um, I've been meaning to do this the past couple episodes, um, but I want to do a plug for another podcast. Um, if you're listening to this, it probably means you like podcasts, and it probably means you like movie podcasts. So uh, I want to recommend another movie podcast that my friend, uh, Clint, um, started along with his friend Eli. Um, it, it is a super entertaining, super enjoyable podcast called um, Purely Nostalgia. Um, and the concept of the podcast is that they go back and they watch movies uh, that we were into when we were kids, people like you know our age, um, and and try to determine well are they still good or not. Um, and so they've only they've done they've done three episodes so far, and they've started off by working through the Spy Kids franchise. Um, and their, their discussions are always very entertaining, very humorous. Um, uh, and they, 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 look, they, they look at the movies from a different perspective than, like, Scott and I look at them. Um, so, like, I think that it, it's a good listen, like, in contrast to our own podcast. Like, I think that they balance each other out really nicely um, because they do take more of a humorous tone and sort of, like, just go through the whole movie, um, you know, pick out moments that they think still stand up or maybe don't stand up as well at least in the case of spy kids 3d game over i don't know how much you remember about that movie but when their discussion of it like they were talking about how bad it is and like how 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 much it really doesn't hold up and like i went back on youtube and watched some of the clips my word like some of the worst visual effects probably that have ever been like put to screen like i don't know like i think robert rodriguez spent all of his money in that movie getting like George Clooney and Sylvester Stallone and all these random supporting people to like make cameos and like he didn't spend any time on the special effects because they look absolute like absolute garbage. Yeah, one of the when you mentioned this podcast to me a little bit earlier off air, I was like, oh, like I think the one movie that I would really be interested to go back and revisit in this context is like Cheaper by the Dozen because it's a movie I really enjoyed oh, watching yes. over and over. And I just I was I just googled it and. Um, I didn't. I never. It has like a twenty on Rotten Tomatoes or something, doesn't it? Yeah, it has like it has a twenty four on Rotten Tomatoes, and also I also just clicked into the director, who's Sean Levy, and he's like slated to direct the Uncharted adaptation, like the Sony franchise Uncharted. He's like tagged to direct that. Well, he's done some other like he does did the Night at the Museum um, series. 
I think he's done at least like one or two Will Ferrell movies, maybe. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't judge him just because he, he uh, directed Cheaper by the Dozen. I mean, I, that is a, li- a little bit of a strange choice. I, I mean, I loved Cheaper by the Dozen. I, I haven't seen it in like probably yeah, I, 15 years, but. Exactly. I, I, I think that that'd be a good movie for the pod, their podcast as well, just because I think it, it'd be interesting to see whether it holds up or not. Because, like you said, I enjoyed the movie a lot too when I was a kid. But I think some other movies that they talked about doing, like. The Airbud franchise, uh-huh. um, or at least the ones where they uh, they put where the dog actually plays sports, because you know there's all like the weird spinoffs, like Air Buddies and all that. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. You know, we don't want we don't want to see that. But uh, also like the Rugrats movies, I think is another thing that they've talked about doing. Um, I watched but, yeah, uh, like, thirty minutes of Little Rascals uh, <laughs> earlier this week. That was a time. And were they, was it a, a captivating thirty minutes? Well, I only watched the last thirty minutes, and Donald Trump is in that movie, which is just hilarious. Oh my gosh, that is, I think, isn't he also in, like, Home Alone 2, maybe? Yeah, I mean, well, like, Trump Tower is, like, the main, the main location in that movie. It was very strange to see him show up in the, in Little Rascals, though. It was a different time. If only we knew then. Um, Yeah, But yeah, so, it's called Purely Nostalgia. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it basically all the same places that you find our podcast. Um, And they have a new episode coming out, I believe this week, where they will be talking about... The fourth Spy Kids movie, God, which why? I never actually saw, Jesus, uh, yeah, which came out with like Joel McHale and like doesn't feature really any of the original cast. Um, so uh, you know, props to them for really committing um, and to watching all of these movies. But yeah, purely nostalgia. Check it out. The budget for Spy Kids All the Time in the World, which came out in 2011, was 40 million dollars. Who sunk 40 million dollars into that movie? It's Jeez. it's. I mean, it's Robert Rodriguez, like. Troublemaker Studios. Um, actually, hold on. I I, I changed. I, I backed it up um, because they're not actually talking about that movie this week. They're talking about um, Shark Boy and Lava Girl, oh, which okay. was even like, better. Robert Rodriguez is like spiritual sequel to um, Spy Kids. Um, you know, but probably in not much better. The time when Spy Kids three and all of the whatever in the world came out. Um, yeah, that was two thousand five. The yeah, of the with like Taylor Lautner, I think played a uh, Lava Boy. Yep, and Taylor Dooley, so two Taylors. Yeah, but I'll be interested to see their conversation because I have a feeling that movie aged even worse than Spike Kids 3D Game Over. Um, well, listen to the pod, listen to their podcast to find out purely nostalgia. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Scarvy Dent. I'll be getting a lot more tweets off hopefully now that uh, now that law school is over for the time being. Yeah, you're gonna have any like uh, World Cup hype? We got a month before the World Cup starts. Oh heck so. yeah! I was thinking about it just the other day. Like I'm, you know, most people aren't excited in America because the Americans aren't in it, but um, I can't wait. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm gonna. I'm literally looking forward to uh, shirking shirking responsibilities on the weekends to watch uh, to watch World Cup. Maybe I'll have maybe I'll fall behind on movies and I'll have to just quit the podcast for a month while I watch the World Cup. <laughs> No. Hopefully not. No, I joke. There's too many good movies coming out this summer. Awesome. Yeah. I can be found at SShelton2013 over on Twitter. Um, and the only thing that I would leave everyone with is that G- Tully is a movie worth going and seeing. If you saw the previews and you were a little skeptical about whether or not it would be worth seeing, I think it's worth seeing. And I know Scott Scott feels that way because he gave it a 9.5. So, yeah, go go watch Tully. It's worth a 9.5, too. Don't let his disparaging remarks uh, fool you. I don't think I was that disparaging. I still, <laughs> I'm, yeah. ki- I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know you are. All right. Uh, we also want to remind you about our Patreon page, uh, and we'd love it if you checked us out over there, uh, especially so if you decide to support us to help us cover the cost of making this show. Uh, that's 
www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, and uh, you know, if you support the show, you get the appropriate rewards tiers based on the reward amount. So go check those out. Uh, at the very least, uh, at the $1 tier, you get every episode a little bit earlier. You get it first. Um, if you ever choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's really fine. And you can still find us on Apple Podcasts where we'd really appreciate it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, as always, I've said probably too much, so I'm going to cut myself off there. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies, and we apologize again about not being able to swing the seagull. Hopefully, we'll be able to talk about it on a future episode, but in the meantime, we'll be back in two weeks with two new movies, both of which are huge releases, Deadpool 2 and Solo, A Star Wars Story. We can't wait to talk about those two, and we hope you'll join us then to hear what we have to say, but until then, we hope you have a wonderful day. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.